0: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is a CBC Podcast.
3: This is Podcast Playlist. This week, we're sharing one of our favourite episodes from June. Gossip. Whether you've been part of spreading it or have been at the centre of it, we've all had experience with gossip in one form or another. Hearing a good rumor can be exciting. Being in the know can make you feel like you're part of the in-crowd. And while some may argue that gossip can ruin lives, it also has a unique ability to bring people together. The podcast Normal Gossip has shot to fame within the past year. Each week, host Kelsey McKinney shares a juicy piece of gossip submitted by complete strangers, from weird neighbors to sorority wedding drama to secret workplace romances, Every story is equally outrageous and hilarious. Today, Kelsey joins me as a guest curator. We'll hear more about Normal Gossip, plus she'll share a few of her favorite podcasts. Kelsey joins me from Los Angeles. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. We're thrilled to have you. So I need to know what made you want to create Normal Gossip, which, by the way, full disclosure, I listened to the show, I love the show, and thank you for this show. It came at the exact right time. I'm sure people have told you that.
4: That's so nice. Yeah. The idea for Normal Gossip came in like the end of 2020, when every phone call i had with my friends was so depressing right like we we were only talking about whether we were sick and how we were doing and these kind of like mundane upsetting little tales and i just really missed the like light happy gossip from my friends of friends and i wished that i could have updates on like whether they were going to break up with their boyfriends or not this like extended cast <laughs> of characters in my friends life and i thought you know what if we could create those kinds of stories for people that they didn't have to know them, and they could experience the gossip firsthand. And so we kind of went from there.
3: And in your opinion, what makes for a good piece of gossip?
4: Yeah, well, for the show, we are looking for gossip that has usually a kind of intimate feel so we want to be able to create like four walls around it and a roof and a floor so to kind of situate you within the space because with audio you can't see anything famously so we want to kind of build that out which usually means we're looking for gossip in specific communities whether that's a knitting club or a kickball league or a wedding kind of a closed environment and then we're looking for not necessarily high stakes. We don't need the stakes to be life or death, but we need the tension to be really high. So we want people to be kind of cringing along with the story the way that they would hearing one in a bar.
3: And how do you choose which submissions out of those which have that context? How do you choose which ones to share on the show?
4: That's a great question. We The first thing we do is make sure that there's enough commentary to last for the full hour because a lot of gossip stories don't have enough density to them to fill up all of that time. So that's the first cut we make. And then the second one has to do with really just vibes. Like we want the show to be funny and fun and light. And so we're looking for stories that the people on our staff are really excited about and that we can kind of like riff
5: off of
3: from that point, you you change people's names mm-hmm. and details to make them anonymous. And one of the things that I always think about when I listen to your show is, has any does anyone email you and go, I know that you just spoke about my love life on Normal Gossip, and I want to know who told you? <laughs> has anyone ever identified themselves to you?
4: So we get the emails a lot. The way that we anonymize is we change all the names, we change the locations, we usually change like any detail that is iconic is shifted slightly. So we always use a sports analogy. If we had gossip about a soccer team, it might become a volleyball team, right? And that's the kind of shifting we do. So what's interesting is we do get a lot of emails from people saying like, this is absolutely my community. This is absolutely my story. And no one has been right yet, which is kind of terrifying. Oh, interesting. (laughs) So we had we had an episode about knitting. And in the knitting circle, there was this drama where one of the women was using acrylic wool, which is a, a big faux pas in this community, apparently. And we got all of these emails from people that were saying, you know, is that my knitting group in Minneapolis or wherever? And we were just hysterically laughing as a team because the original craft wasn't knitting. And so we kept laughing to ourselves. We were like, what's happening in your knitting group that you thought that this could be you? <laughs> I
3: love that. And and how do you vet to see whether these stories are true or not? I mean, you've just told us that obviously, uh, they replicate themselves. But are you worried that you're getting a piece of maybe, you know, fanciful gossip in, instead of true gossip?
4: Sure. So we I want to be really clear that this is not journalism. We are not following like (laughs) newsroom standards. We do usually check like that the people in the story exist. And we ask, I ask so many follow-up questions that it would be almost impossible, I think, to fake it. But that said, we're not, we're not making sure that every single thing is true. We want the story to be ideally third-hand, so to come from a friend of a friend of a friend, which means that already the anonymization process has begun because every single time you tell a story, you know, a $5 bribe becomes a $10 bribe becomes a $50 bribe. And that's the version of the story we want, is the one that is already a little heightened.
3: And what is it about gossip that you personally like? Because so many of us like gossip. What is it about it that you... Connect with.
4: We talk a lot on the show about like what gossip is and what is gossip and what isn't and how it can be used for good or for evil. And I think when I talk about gossip, I am often talking about a tone more than anything else. So the idea that like you as a person are a two liter Coke bottle that someone dropped a Minto in and shook up. And then we are like releasing this valve of energy. And that's That's what I love about gossip is the kind of like frantic feeling that you get when you hear a great story where you just know that you have to tell everyone you've ever met in the next five minutes or you'll die.
3: And depending on who you ask, though, you know, gossip can be seen as a really negative thing, as a bad thing. What would you say is the value in gossip?
4: Sure. I think gossip is a tool like any social tool. Of course, you can use it for evil. You can use most things for evil. But we gossip as a way to build community with one another. First off, that's how you kind of engage with your peers and create connections, talking about other people. It's also, at its most extremely good, a way to share information that could be life-saving, right? Whisper networks are a form of gossip. Sharing salary is a form of gossip. Any kind of information about a predator or something that might hurt you in the future is also gossip. We use it in a wide range of places.
3: Normal gossip has grown in popularity really fast, mainly through word of mouth. I mean, literally through the power (laughs) of gossip. My friend, and I mean, I work in podcasting and I heard about it through a friend who Mm -hmm. sent it to me and said something like, we need this. Like, I think that's what she wrote underneath. It traveled so fast after it was released, but it took a while for the show to get made. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
4: Early on, we did a pilot of the show, so a very early version of what we thought it could be. That is obviously very different from what we put out now, and I say we meaning my company, Defector Media, that I co-own, and we took it out to a bunch of places that were big podcast studios, all the sexy big names that you've heard of, and nobody wanted it because everyone kind of said, well, it's an unproven concept. And that's true because a podcast like this that is like high structure storytelling didn't really exist in the market at the time. And people, we couldn't point to direct comp about gossip. And so all of these men in suits told us, no, we don't know how we could sell ads on it and therefore it's valueless. And we didn't believe them, right? We thought we had something good and we thought that we could make it really interesting and fun. And so we kind of just did it Anyway, like we found someone who would let us send it out into the world and sell like very basic ads on it if we got enough listeners, because we trust, I trust myself more than I trust data that people have pulled from other successful podcasts. And so we pushed through that. My producer, Alex, who Laughlin and I kind of said, well, then what is the ideal version of this podcast look like for us like what do we want to listen to what would we want it to sound like and we were thinking a lot about the kind of podcast that you send to your friends we built mm-hmm. it that way to make it mm-hmm. so that like my dream for the podcast is that you would listen to an episode and your friend would listen to an episode separately and you would meet up for drinks and disagree and fight over it like that is what <laughs> I'm trying to build is that kind of like you n- unanimous conflict <laughs> inside mess.
3: <laughs> I love that. Really, in the end, you want you want these people to to gather around and kind of talk about the show. Mm-hmm. But what on an individual level would you want people to take away from this show?
4: I think there are lofty ways to answer this question, right? I could say that I want people to take away the idea that gossip is a tool that can be used for good as well as evil. But When we're making the show, the thing I want people to take away is the story. Like, I want these to essentially turn into urban myths. I want you to tell them to your friends. And that is kind of what we want is to create joy, to make a little spark of enchantment in the world. (laughs)
3: Well, we're going to listen to a little bit of it now. Um, This episode was a wild ride. It was your season three finale titled (laughs) Steampunk Ass Murder Mystery. And if you can, without spoilers, can you explain what the protagonist Luna is dealing with?
5: Yes.
4: So in this story, Luna has joined a group of pocket watch aficionados And she is involved in this online community of people who love pocket watches. And she's there because she's trying to get a pocket watch that she has inherited fixed. And she falls into this kind of grand community of people in the early aughts who just lived on this website and kind of had community with each other and had a common villain, we'll call him. To
3: set up this clip, Luna and her new internet friend, Gabriela, go to a collector's festival to try and find Mitchell. He's known in this pocket watch community as someone who can fix any type of watch. They find him in the hopes that he can fix Luna's pocket watch.
4: So Sunday morning, you know, our two girlies, they're waking up, they're rolling out of bed, they're getting a Bloody Mary at the bar. They're having a great time and they're like, you know what, let's just like take one more lap around this festival before we go home. And they start their lap, and there at his booth is Mitchell. And they're like, oh, Jesus Christ, finally. He looks like pretty much exactly how Luna thought he would look. He's like tall and thin, wiry beard. He's wearing like a tweed vest on top of a t-shirt, and he's wearing like dark jeans. On his forearm is like a hyper-realistic tattoo of a pocket watch. And they like can't tell they're like, I don't know, is he doing steampunk? Is he like (laughs) the kind of person who calls himself a mixologist? (laughs) Like what's happening here?
6: Oh no. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm so glad they didn't waste any time like trying to find this like steampunk ass murder mystery man in a tweed vest when they could make out. Anyway, please go. Yeah,
4: they're like, thank God that we focused on each other and not on this man. He's wearing like glasses that have something on them called a loop which is like that little single microscope thing that goes on glasses that like jewelers have. Apparently pocket watch tinkerers also need these. Luna and Gabriella like approach him, but a little hesitantly because they're like, who is, what's happening here? This is like a stressful environment for us. And they're like, hi, like we're Luna and Gabriella. We each have a pocket watch. Both of our pocket watches are broken. We've heard that you're like the pocket watch tinkerer. And he's like, sure, what are your problems? And so they like kind of describe their problems. And Mitchell is like, show me like you, Gabriella, show me your watch first. And she like hands it to him and he's like, move. And so she like backs up and this guy like dismantles her watch like extremely quickly. All around him are like little tools, right? Like metal pliers and tiny screwdrivers. And there are like watches everywhere. And things are just like flying places. And Gabriela and Luna are like, this is very overwhelming, but also like this man seems to know what he's doing. And incredibly, Mitchell fixes Gabriella's watch while they stand there, like watching him remove little wheels and replacing them. He's like, done. Like it's some kind of like time trial. He says it so loudly that both girls like jump back. But Gabriela's pocket watch is fixed. And she's like, I'm so happy. And Luna's like, I'm so happy for you. And Mitchell's like, next, who else has a watch?
6: It's still giving, like, Alice in Wonderland to me, and he is, like, wearing the Mad Hatter hat, and springs are <laughs> flying everywhere, Yeah, wearing, like, the weird glasses. Yeah, this is perfect.
4: Luna's like, okay, here's my watch, right? She, like, hands it to him out of her pocket, and his eyes get, like, as big as saucers. And he's like, oh, this is, like, a really cool watch. He's like, did you know that like they don't make pieces for these anymore because they were all part of a kind of unpopular limited run right before the brand changed the way that they made pocket watches? And like, this is a real collector's item. Like, this is a great watch. And Luna's like, I did actually know all of this because it's broken. and like, I can't fix anything. I got it for my grandfather after he died. And like, I don't know what to do with it.
6: He's like explaining her watch to her. It reminds me this famous only to me story where I was wearing a, sh- a Mitsuki shirt And I went into a coffee shop. Uh, It said, bury me at Makeout Creek. And this guy looks at my shirt and says, oh, cool shirt. Do you know the reference? Oh, my God. And I was like, it's a Mitski shirt. And he's like, no, but do you know, like, bury my heart at Wounded Knee? And I'm like, yeah, I do. But this is... A Mitski, this is shirt. a Mitski shirt. But yeah, it's a reference of that. And <laughs> so now every oh time I wear God. that shirt, my roommate will go, Oh, cool shirt. Do you know the reference? And it's just like <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> yeah. Like, I know, it's mine. I know. I'm a i am I bought this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, anyway,
4: so she's like, OK, like, this is my grandfather's watch. Like, can you do something with it? And Mitchell does look like genuinely moved by this. Like, he's like, it's so nice that you like are keeping your grandfather's watch and that you want it to work. Like, not everyone appreciates history like this. Like, thank you for bringing it to me. And she's like, cool. Can you fix it? And Mitchell's like, I don't know. I haven't even opened it yet. Luna's like, great point. My bad. So he like opens the watch and immediately like cringes. He points out things that, like, the other watch fixers have pointed out, the balance wheel and the staff that we already talked about. But he's also pointing out, like, other smaller problems that no one has pointed out, right? He's like, this is also a problem. This is a problem. Like, all of these are due to wear, but, like, probably it was just a really long time coming, right? Like, your grandfather used this watch too much, basically. So they're, like, standing there watching him do this. And he's like, can I get some space? Like, can you guys back up? and they're like sure and then he's like actually can you like just take a lap let me work and they're like okay so they take their little walk they like get their snack they like have a little handhold as a treat and they like come back and Mitchell is like listen i can fix this watch like it needs very specific pieces to tick again but i can get them he's like but i'm asking you if i can take this watch home with me <laughs> Do you think that they should let Mitchell take the watch home?
6: Sorry, that was the obvious question, but I needed you to ask it because I was just holding my breath. Yeah. For them. I could see him panicking. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I feel like she has to ask in her heart, is it worth the risk? Right? Because she can either for sure have the watch, but it doesn't tick and she mm-hmm. won't know the time. But Gabriella, her new wife, mm-hmm. has yeah. a pocket watch and can tell her the time. Um, that's a great
4: point. (laughs) She can get it
6: to tick, but she might lose the whole watch because Mitchell is like some guy from the internet who clearly is flaky because he's really hard to get a hold of and like doesn't even show up to things he says he's going to show up to. So I mean, like personally, again, not understanding the investment of the tick, um, I would just keep it in my pocket But that's because I'm (laughs) neurotic about those things. And like maybe it's you got to live a little and risk things. I don't know. Um, So (laughs) trust him. (laughs)
4: Gabriella is like, can you show us how bad it is? Right? Mm -hmm. Like what's how? Because she knows more about pocket watches. So she's like, can you show us like what's going on here? And he is like, okay, the real problem is do you see this one wheel here that is like rusted out? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, that has to be replaced for this to work. And, like, it's not going to work without a new one. And, like, the only way I can find it is, like, by finding another watch, which, like, I think I have one at my house. Like, that's why I really want to take it home. And Luna is, like, kind of on the verge of tears because she's like, I don't know what to do here. And also, like, I really thought that he was going to be able to fix it immediately because he fixed Gabriella so quickly. And he's like, okay. Listen, I can fix it. Like, give me time and I'll fix it. Look at this whole stack of watches that are, like, in little packets that I'm taking home to fix. Mm. Like, I will give you my business card. I will
6: fix it. Mm. I mean, is there going to be another watch expo? Can he just bring a little part to the next
4: one? That's really thinking ahead. That's not what our girls are doing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What Luna is doing is, you know what the sunk cost fallacy is? (laughs) Absolutely. Can you explain it to the listeners? Sure,
6: sure, sure. Um, It's like you've invested so much into something that even though it makes sense to bail on it, you're like, I can't possibly bail on this because I've already put so much into it. And that could apply to anything from waiting a really long time for a train to show up to like, your marriage right like it could yes. be any of those things so <laughs> yes I guess it is watch ticking now
4: here it is watch ticking so luna is like take it and gabrielle is like i think that's the right decision like he's fixed so many things he fixed my watch that i couldn't fix like i think this was a good call and like i think it will work luna's like great and at first she feels really good about this decision and then she does not hear from Mitchell for like 1 week, 2 weeks, 3 weeks.
6: Yeah, he's bad at communicating. We knew oh, this. What point do you follow up? Oh, I mean, I'm following up the whole time. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like once a week at least. I'm like, hey, Mitchell, what's up? Just wanted to check in ETA, ETD, TBD, Mm -hmm, TK, mm -hmm. any other acronyms I can throw at him. (laughs) Yeah, no, we're, you know, we're getting. I would also feel, though, that I would ask for a firm timeline before I gave it to him so that I knew when I should start being annoying, you know?
4: Yeah, that would be smart. What Luna does is she waits a month. And then she starts calling the number on the card that he gave her like every day. Every day she gets an answering machine. She leaves a message. He does not call her back. Oh, Mitchell. (laughs) Classic Mitchell
3: classic classic Mitchell from Defector Media and Radiotopia that was Normal Gossip the show is co-created and produced by Alex Sujon Laughlin it's hosted by the other co-creator Kelsey McKinney who's with me today Kelsey we're now going to begin to listen to your podcast picks we're going to start with a favorite among our team as well which is IcyMI. it's hosted by Rachel Hampton and the show unpacks the ever-changing internet trend cycle what do you like about this show
4: I love ICYMI. I love listening to Rachel. I think she has a great voice. And I also think she's great at explaining things in a way that doesn't make you feel stupid for not knowing them. I think that it's very easy to miss an entire trend online now, right? You go on vacation for four days and you come back and everyone is using some, you know, like some phrase like Rizzy. And you're like, yeah. I don't know what this <laughs> means. And Rachel. Breaks it down for you and doesn't make you feel dumb for not knowing it and kind of takes you into the internet in a way that has a sense of wonder still instead of just resentment and bitterness.
3: Definitely. She's like a a beautiful guide that takes you through the internet.
4: Wow, she really is.
3: The clip we're going to hear actually features the producer of your show, Alex Sujon (laughs) Laughlin. And she joined Rachel to talk about Taylor Swift and concert spoilers on TikTok. Let's take a listen.
7: So you have tickets to the Airs tour, correct? You're, you're one of the lucky ones.
5: I sure do. I sure do. And <laughs> I fought for them.
7: I'm sure you did, honestly. <laughs> it, the girlies were in the trenches with that. So I'm assuming you're super excited, but I have to ask if your excitement has been at all tempered by the fact that I'm assuming your FYP is as full of, if not fuller, of Taylor Swift footage as mine is. Just to give a sense of scale 80 million people watched the first two nights of Taylor's tour on TikTok, which is wild.
5: Yeah, I was one of them. I mean, I will be clear, I didn't stream it um, because I don't want to spoil it that much. But yeah, I am like really excited and also have like complicated feelings about the fact that I know the choreography for Vigilante and, mm-hmm. like, I know what her different costumes look like. And there's this one moment where she, like, does this optical illusion stage dive mm-hmm. uh, that really blew people's minds the first night. And, like, now I know that it's going to happen. And I feel kind of weird about it. Um, I had a dream last night uh, <laughs> that... I went to the concert mm-hmm. and that it felt like I was watching a TikTok and because I had seen everything on TikTok already the concert ended and in my mind I was like wait I'm excited for the concert and then I had to remind myself that it was already over and that it like wasn't even that great because I had oh seen everything my already God. It made me really sad.
7: Yeah, of course it did. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things you mentioned that really kind of lodged its way into my brain is that the Aeros tour is so present online that Taylor has had to respond by changing things so that her fans are surprised, which... She's always been a person who just loves engaging with her fandom. She loves to drop little hints and clues and <laughs> treasure hunts that have only encouraged the politely, I'll say, detective skills of her audience. Um, <laughs> others might say <laughs> conspiracy theorists. QAnon theorist. light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> but yeah. it's wild to me to think of artists having to put on... These massive three hour productions because that's how long an airs tour concert is. And then also having to deal with changing it constantly so that their fans haven't seen all of it on TikTok by the time they actually see it in person.
5: Yeah. Like I think that she tried to preempt some of this with the secret songs that she's doing um, mm-hmm. there's like a part of the concert that's an acoustic set um, and she said at the beginning that she was going to play different songs at every stop on the tour um, as a way to mix it up you know yeah. and <laughs> the fandom <laughs> Has created spreadsheets They have Mm -hmm. created like They have like These like whiteboards Where they're crossing off songs As she plays them Like in an attempt To predict What she's gonna play At their night of the tour Which is wild to me because it's, like, this is at least one part that is deliberately meant to be a surprise. And they're trying to, like, remove that element of surprise. Remove every element possible. Which is really interesting to me. I don't feel like it's bad, necessarily. I don't feel like it's good. I just... It's just an interesting way to engage with a live music experience.
7: And then there's the added element of not just fans who are doing this, who want to know what's going to happen, but content creators who are seeing Mm -hmm. this as an opportunity for exclusive content. I'm going to read a bit from a nylon piece written by Brooke Lamentia titled... Why go to a show when you can see it on TikTok? Hoping to maximize her chances of capturing one of the first viral concert moments of Taylor Swift's upcoming Eras tour, 26-year-old Los Angeles content creator Reagan Bailey decided to purchase tickets for the tour's opening night in Glendale, Arizona, as well as the shows in Los Angeles. I see it as a content opportunity because, obviously, I'll be one of the first people to be able to post about it, which is huge, Bailey says. But then, second of all, her shows in my city are the last shows of the tour— So I didn't want to watch the whole thing play out on TikTok and feel like I had already gone. Hmm. Like, of course we're here. We've kind of always been here in a way. But something about this feels different.
5: Yeah, I feel weird about it. Like, I am a person who believes that, like, influencers are doing real and good sometimes good work like this is a job like I'm not somebody who thinks that content creators are not professional people but there's also a part of me that's like wow what a cynical like approach to something that like in theory is a really joyful experience Mm -hmm. and I don't think that this person is cynical necessarily but I just I think that the media environment that we all live in that we have to exist in like hyper capitalistic media environment means that like now when we go somewhere exceptional or see something amazing, the first thing that we think is like, can I make money off of this? Mm-hmm. And to a lesser extent, like, can I get views? Can I get clout? Because to a certain extent, like views and clout are money.
7: It's another kind of capital.
5: Yeah. And it's, it's wild. I mean, it, like, it makes sense that like, Taylor Swift tickets, especially, were very difficult to get for the tour. <laughs> I saw the girlies crying on TikTok. I
7: saw the girlies crying on TikTok.
5: <laughs> yes. And, like, I think that there's something to be said about making the experience accessible to people who couldn't get tickets. Mm-hmm. But it also just... Uh yeah. Uh, it just makes me feel sad. Same.
7: Because there's a voice in my head that sounds a lot like another friend of the show, Nadir Goff, who wrote a great piece about how concert spoilers make the act of concert going more accessible. And largely, I agree, because mm-hmm. it's true that especially for a concert like Taylor Swift, where getting tickets was basically like the Hunger Games, it seemed like. Yes. That most people won't be able to see it. So being able to see it in this way, being able to know the set list, being able to see all these threads that are dedicated to her outfit changes, getting to look at the spreadsheets of the surprise songs (laughs) that are playing, seeing the swan dive moment off of the stage in 50 different forums, that all feels great for people who don't get to see the concert in person or even don't get to see it until later i mean here's at the cotton candy unicorn over on tiktok talking about how much she wants those spoilers
4: i understand all the fans who don't want spoilers for the eras tour it's just that that could never be me my entire friday night st patrick's day plans are sitting on my couch and watching every single eras tour video i can possibly find and i am so incredibly excited for that
7: But I don't know if I necessarily believe that people are creating this content so that people who can't see the concert can see the concert. Like, it doesn't feel like an altruistic
5: thing. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's exactly it. Also, we are in the era where all of these major concerts are being filmed. And mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. fairly confident that given the Ticketmaster drama, that we will get a concert film of this tour that will be much better quality than the millions of cell phone videos that are on TikTok.
3: Indeed. That's how I feel right now about the Beyonce tour. I'm just like, people, are you just, I'm going to yeah. see it before I see it. Let's I, see what happens.
4: I've, I tried to avoid all of the Taylor videos before I went to the concert. I'm trying very hard to avoid all of the Beyonce videos as well. But I think what this podcast is so good at is taking something that like I find annoying, which is having to scroll past a bunch of TikToks that I don't want spoilers from and asking a deeper question about it instead of just like whining and saying like, why do people do this? What is their interest? What do they benefit from it? And that is fascinating to me. Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. From Slate, that was ICYMI. It's hosted by Rachel Hampton. She produces the show with Sierra Spragley-Ricks and Daisy Rosario. In that clip, she was joined by Alex Sujon Laughlin. We recommend listening through that whole episode if you'd like to hear more. You can find the link at our website at cbcca podcast playlist.
0: I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What?
3: You're staring at me
1: like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand?
0: Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This one's all about fashion, and it's called Articles of Interest. What is it about this show that you connect with?
4: So this show is also made by Radiotopia. And we were so excited to sign with Radiotopia because Alex and I are such big fans of Articles of Interest and of Avery, who does the show, that we were like two fangirls the first time we met her. We were like, we think you're a genius. We think everything you're doing is so smart. But it's because this show is has the ability to change the way that you think about something as fundamental to being a person right now as putting clothes on your body. Like listening to articles of interest forced me to rethink the way that I shop and the way that I think about what I put on myself and the way that I think about like the way I am perceived by others. Like it completely changed my relationship to clothing, which is a huge thing to say about a podcast. (laughs)
3: Huge. But the mind shift that it makes you take once you think Mm -hmm. all of the simple clothes that you put on that you just independently chose, maybe it's there's something deeper than that. Definitely.
4: Right. It's like the little Miranda Priestly monologue in um, The Devil (laughs) Devil Wears Wears Prada, Prada. right? Of like, you think that you bought this turquoise sweater at Target of your own free will, but you didn't. It's like, what if a podcast was that?
3: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, okay, we're going to listen to a bit now. We're going to learn about a staple piece of clothing in everyone's wardrobe. Blue jeans.
8: What's great about blue jeans we like to say that we pioneered them, and, and we claim being the inventor of them. This is Tracy Panic, the corporate historian at Levi Strauss & Company. They touch on the roots of the blue-collar workers. They became a canvas for self-expression in the 1960s. So in many ways, they hit on key cultural moments that go across our society.
9: This is the difference between denim and jeans. Denim is a fabric that can be used in jackets, shirts, dresses, tablecloths, upholstery, you name it. Blue jeans are a very specific kind of pants. And they have a couple hallmarks. For the most part, they are blue and they are worn in. They basically look like this.
8: This that you're looking at is the oldest pair of blue jeans in the world. It dates to about 1879 and this is the blueprint for all blue jeans today.
9: The world's oldest pair of blue jeans. They looked classic, meaning they really don't look very different from the kinds of jeans you'd find in a thrift store today. They had held up well. Yes, they were patched and a little stained. But if I wanted to, I could have totally put them on right there and walked out of the archive wearing them. And the security guard wouldn't have even noticed because they're still just jeans. The differences are subtle.
8: This one only has one pocket in the back. Uh, we didn't add the second pocket onto the back until 1901. And here's the
9: really cool thing about old blue jeans. With most of our clothes, we try to keep them pretty pristine and avoid spills and rips and tears. But denim is so hard-wearing and hard-working that it just kind of amasses more and more signs of wear. So you can dissect a pair of old jeans like an archaeologist. You can actually see how someone walked
8: or sat. You'll see all of this wear, this honeycombing, as we call it, that's simply wear and tear from the people, the men who were wearing it. And we think that there were as many as three men who wore this, this particular pant.
9: You can tell by looking at the impressions on the knees.
8: The knee marks go up and down in several places because they are in several locations. We know that several people wore them. And that was common with jeans. They'd get passed around. They were sturdy enough that you could
9: do that. Which is kind of romantic, right? Because this is still how we like to think of our blue jeans today. Broken in, durable, something to be worn and reworn and passed around, just like these original jeans. But the jeans you and I wear today may look like those original Levi's. Hell, they may even say Levi's on them. But they are not the same kind of pants. In between 1879 and today pretty much everything that makes blue jeans blue jeans, from how they're made to what they're made of to where they end up, has changed. Because blue jeans reveal our wear patterns, our values. They show the movements we make over and over again. They show our true color. So denim was around before Levi Strauss, and blue denim trousers were around before Levi Strauss. But here is what Levi Strauss did that made the blue jean. He patented the rivets on the pockets.
8: The innovation of the rivets is that you could take a a little tiny piece of metal, add them to the pockets, and they became much stronger. So if you're putting your hands in your pockets, they're not going to tear.
9: The rivets were the big selling point, not necessarily the denim. And when they used denim, it wasn't always necessarily blue. It doesn't have to be. Blue is just tradition. Denim can be any color. Lynn Downey is a biographer of Levi Strauss and the former Levi's corporate historian before Tracy.
1: Over the years, the company did make blue and gold denim products. I think there was even, yes, there was even a red denim, like red and white denim. But it was indigo, indigo blue dyed thread that was easiest, that seemed to to last the longest, and people just gravitate toward it.
9: It's hard to explain why humans are so attracted to indigo. Historically, the dye had massive power. Indigo used to be very rare and expensive, especially since that process of dyeing is so special and magical. Blue was a symbol of status and or wealth all over the world. Indigo has its roots in India, hence its name, and variants grow in Vietnam and West Africa and the tropics, anywhere where it's humid. It needs
1: humidity, you know, heat and humidity, the same conditions as rice.
9: So indigo was also able to thrive in South Carolina.
1: Indigo had first been cultivated in the United States in the 1740s by a woman, oh, by the way, Eliza Pinckney.
9: She was really a girl. She was 16
1: years old. Born in Antigua. And her family then had plantations in South Carolina, and she and her family moved there. And her father had sent her some indigo seeds from the Caribbean, and she thought, "Hmm, let's try this. She was able to cultivate enough indigo to make it a cash crop.
9: But when indigo became a cash crop, it became mass-produced. And so that labor-intensive magical process of making indigo was scaled up with slave labor.
0: And I can just imagine the slaves and the women especially are are stirring these indigo vats as they were processing this dye, and their hands were blue. Before the American
9: Revolution, before cotton became king, indigo was the second largest cash crop in the colonies, after rice. There were indigo plantations all across the South, and some of them lasted well into the Civil War. Virginia, South Carolina
0: for sure. This story takes place in Georgia.
9: This is Anne Masai, and she has this amazing story about her grandfather's grandfather, who was born as a slave on an indigo plantation. His name is John, John Henry, and it was very common for them to swaddle the babies in the blue cloth. So when baby John was born, his parents decided to escape. So they wrapped baby John in indigo and headed north. They crept through the underbrush, creeping their way up. About an hour after they set out, they heard dogs barking in the distance.
0: And the screaming of the voices that they recognized was the overseer. So they ran into the brush, they found a place to hide, they secreted themselves, and baby John started to whimper and fuss. Somebody came over and was investigating this noise. It was the overseer. He looked down just as the moon came out, and the baby John jumped and screamed out, and suddenly the overseer ran away, like, whoa, whoa, get out, get out, Yankees are here, the Yankees are here, the Blues are here.
9: The Blues of the Union Army's uniforms.
0: Get out, get out, the Blues are here. He saw Baby John swaddled in the blue cloth, the indigo cloth, and the overseer thought that that was a Yankee in his blue cloth hiding, and they were going to be ambushing this this group, and they, they got out. From PRX and Radiotopia,
3: that was Articles of Interest. It's created and hosted by Avery Truffleman. That episode was edited by Emmett Fitzgerald and Joe Rosenberg. Avery Truffleman was on our show back in January, and I talked to her about her fashion inspirations and the rise of preppy clothing. If you'd like to check that out, you can find that episode in our podcast feed. While you're at it, give us a follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. So the next podcast you chose is Scam Goddess with Lacey Mosley. <laughs> Tell me about this one. What What is it about this one that you like?
4: I like laugh even at you just mentioning Scam <laughs> Goddess. I, I used to listen to this. Podcast as motivation to convince myself to go to the gym because it was such a little treat to consume. And then I had to stop doing that because I was laughing so hard (laughs) that it was dangerous for me to like do my little lifts and have this podcast on. Lacey, I just think is so funny. Like her timing is impeccable. And there's a lot of podcasts that exist about scams. There's a lot of articles about scams. And so when you're trying to decide like which scam content to consume, you really want to go through it with someone who is going to have as much fun as possible. And Lacey just always does that. She has created a place where they relish in the absurdity of scams.
3: And. Since you you work in in the gossip field, I'll call it, <laughs> yeah, famously. Do, do you think that what are your thoughts about spreading gossip to help deter us from sketchy people?
4: So there's a sociological, I think, I think it's a sociological theory called the meadow report, which is the idea that um even in the animal kingdom, but also humans, you tra- you send someone ahead as a scout. And they reach the meadow and they decide like whether the meadow is clear, whether it has water, whether there are predators there. And then they return to give the report of the meadow. And that that is a key piece of survival, right, is having these people who are able to report back about what the future could hold for you. And I think that that is a form of gossip because it's he's it's a like he said, she said scenario. And I think it's it's similar to the question you asked, right, which is that. You need. We need each other to exist in the world. Your own experience isn't enough to keep you safe and healthy and happy. You need other people around you. You need a community.
3: Well, let's listen to a bit of Scam Goddess, hopefully helping the community. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> in this clip, Lacey is joined by drag queen Shea Coulee to talk about P.T. Barnum. If that name sounds familiar, by the way, it's because he's also known as the Greatest Showman, and maybe you've seen him portrayed by Hugh Jackman in the 2017 movie.
10: So additionally, Barnum became famous for his Fiji Mermaids. The Fiji Mermaids began in 1842 when a Dr. Jay Griffin, said to be a member of the British Lysum Natural History, arrived in New York City with an extraordinarily preserved creature. He advertised the viewing of the creature using illustrations of beautiful mermaids, topless seductresses draped over rocks in faraway lands. So just topless women?
2: Mm-hmm.
10: Okay. But there were several fishy aspects about the mermaids. First, the creatures were not beautiful at all, but rather ugly, tortured-looking beings about three feet in length. Oh. Oh.
2: Oh, God. Oh, my God. Not that.
10: Wait. I never I've never seen this before. <laughs> Like the Little Mermaid is way cuter than this. This is terrifying. That
2: is, yeah, that is uh. uh
10: this is disrespectful.
2: Demystifying. Yeah, I don't like. I don't. I don't want
10: to see that. <laughs> Please take that off the screen, good Lord. This is stuff of nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> so they were also created by sewing fish tails onto monkey torsos, and were not actually rare species found in the country of Fiji. They just sewed fish tails onto monkey torsos. Okay. Last, okay. Dr. J was actually Levy Lehman, an accomplice Barnum employed to help lend scientific credibility to the mermaids. So he hired somebody who was like, No, this is science. I-, I I did research. This is definitely real. They're real. So, I see stitching. <laughs> what is that stitching in between the oh the, the, ah, <laughs> right. you too close. Uh, then uh, we uh. tell you to leave. <laughs> see if you had left, right. you would have saw the
2: stitching. Right stitching is natural. Right,
10: get out. So, they also though they had been around for years according to a peer, the Fiji mermaid was a classic example of Barnum's ability to take mildly interesting object that had been around for some time and puff it almost overnight into an earth-shaking event. Cuz now everybody wants to see this terrifying mermaid.
2: Oh god.
10: The mermaids were likely religious artifacts created and used by fishermen of Japan and the East Indies brought by the Dutch and sold to American seamen. So, like, he just made this up. Like, Uh he was like, it's mermaids. So, transition to the circus. We're getting to the end here. Because I was like, didn't he have a circus? I I, I never knew about the museum that he was parading people through. But I knew about the circus. So, in addition to the museum, Barnum also attempted to buy the American portion of Niagara Falls to fence in and charge admission, but New York State wouldn't sell. This is what I hate about capitalists. How you gonna buy... Mm -hmm. How are you going to buy a waterfall? Right. You can't own a waterfall. Right. <laughs>
2: He's like, that's mine. That's going to be my waterfall. How much I want for this waterfall? No. <laughs> right. Give it to me.
10: He also tried to buy the ruins of Pompeii and the Strasbourg. Oh, Jesus <laughs> this <man is> wild. <laughs> Christ.
2: It's crazy. The ego.
10: <laughs> he said, like, how much I want for them pyramids, Egypt? Let me get one. I'm trying to make a circus. (laughs) Right. No. So he also tried to buy Stratford-upon-Avon, the cottage in which Shakespeare was born, but neither the Italian nor English governments were interested in making a deal because why would they be?
2: Exactly. And England
10: has so little history-wise that's impressive other than their incestuous monarchy. So they gotta hold on (laughs) to the little tourism other than that that they got. They're like, y'all come see this. They're
2: like, we got this clock
10: come to the globe theater it's very small
2: palace <laughs> <laughs> it's very we got small. a bridge
10: i felt like how i felt when i went to the alamo because i'm from texas and they always like remember the alamo we had to study the alamo and then we got there and i was like go, i've been in like, bigger mcdonald's oh. what is this
2: <laughs> that's how i was i remember seeing stonehenge for the first oh, time oh goodness being like, just rocks right i was like these are just like human-sized rocks Like, all the pictures make them seem, like, huge, like a big old temple, or you get up there and you're like, oh.
10: I love the scam of Stonehenge. They were like, how can we get people over here to look at these rocks? (laughs) So, unfortunately for his other finances, Barnum's Museum of Oddities and Horrors didn't last long as a fire burned down the five-story building one summer day in 1865. Good. Burn it with fire.
2: Good. Mm -hmm. It was suspected
10: that the Confederate Army of Manhattan burned it down after they had Previously failed to in a conspiracy to firebomb the city. So they've been trying to burn this down. And then we have a graphic here that says disastrous fire in caps, total destruction of Barnum's American Museum, nine other buildings burned to the ground, loss estimated at $1 million. This is very succinct news. They were like, we're getting to the right. point, no editorializing.
2: Exactly. Ooh, it's like I'm feeling very conflicted because here, the confederacy has done something that I like. (laughs) 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 I don't think I'll ever say that again. Like a broken clock can be right two times a (laughs) day.
10: We'll give them one. They were right Right. I was all like, how in the world did they? They didn't do it for the right reasons, though.
2: They didn't do it for the right reasons, though. It wasn't the racism that was bothering them, for sure. No, they loved that.
10: They were like, that's our favorite thing. We're just burning this for other reasons. So Barnum opened another museum shortly after, but that too burnt down in 1868. Barnum went bankrupt due to a fraudulent clock company that went under, hilarious, What's a fraudulent clock company? <laughs> it's, <right>. it's clocks.
2: <laughs> like, they just got a chill time.
10: Right? I feel like you don't have to do right. crime with that. Trying try just to give time. people more
2: hours in the day or something? Right. He's I like, y'all understand. use these clocks
10: in your businesses. Your employees won't realize. But we made the minute hand two minutes right. longer.
2: <laughs> right. They not gonna no, they've been here for
10: 12 hours instead of six. <laughs> like, what? So, besides the money issues and arson instances, he attempted to find a fortune again by going into business with James A. Bailey. In eighteen seventy one, Barnum came out of retirement of doing just terrible things to promote P. Oh. T. Barnum's great traveling museum, menagerie, caravan, and hippodrome. This is a
2: lot of things. Damn, that's a title. That sounds like one of Nene League's parties.
10: Right. <laughs> Which would later become Barnum and Bailey's Circus. This man can't he always doing the most. It operated for 147 years until its closure in 2017 because nobody's going to the circus anymore. Right. Barnum also pursued a political career later in life becoming the mayor of bridgeport connecticut in 1875 this man will not quit he is given billionaire right. he's like i gotta be involved in politics i gotta have my hand in everything and also be a nasty man
3: Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> she's so funny <laughs> she is so funny i yeah i love that show that was Scam Goddess from Earwolf and Team Coco. The show was hosted by Lacey Mosley. In that episode, she was joined by Shay Koolet. Before we close this conversation today, which I'm sad that it's almost over, but um, I wanted to ask you about your tour. So could mm-hmm. you could you let listeners know about the tour and, and maybe a little more about it?
4: I would love to. Yeah. I, the first thing you should know is that the tour manager told me today that he has ne- obtained the 28,000 glow sticks that we had to order um, <laughs> for my little schemes to work. So that's the vibe. Lots of glow sticks, lots of fun. We're doing uh, eight cities, 10 stops. It's basically we. I tell the story live it, to the to the audience. And it's the same story every night, but a different guest. And the way it works is we like to create as much chaos as possible. And so I will tell the guest the story. And this is an example and not one we'll use. But I would get to a point where I would say something like, you know, your sister-in-law is watching all of your Instagram stories, but your husband cheated on you. Like, what do you do? (laughs) Right. And the guest would say, you know, I would block her on everything. And then I turn to the audience and I say, raise your green glow stick if you agree with the guest. And then oh. I have people raise the red glow stick if they disagree. And then we send a scout out to get someone to fight the guest. <laughs> so it's very dramatic. It's very fun. The story we're telling, I think, is going to be a real riot. I'm very excited.
3: Well, Kelsey, you have me at glow sticks. I uh, this, is, <laughs> <laughs> this all sounds really, really fun. And I just want to thank you again for your show. It's just... Um,
4: Thank you so much. A light,
3: fluffy, wonderful thing in this world.
4: And thanks for joining us today. Of
3: course. Thanks for having me. It was a delight. That was Kelsey McKinney, the co-creator and host of Normal Gossip. You can find her show wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can learn more about her tour on her website at normalgossiplive.com. Kelsey had so many great podcast picks, we couldn't fit them all into this episode, so we've released a bonus episode to include them. You can check that out in our podcast feed. We would love to hear about your favorite podcast, so you can share your recommendations by email. We're at podcastplaylist at cbc.ca. You can also find us on Facebook at podcastplaylist. Podcast Playlist is Kelsey Cueva and Julian Muzielli. Our senior producer is Kate Evans and our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Thanks for listening.